I'm Shandy Chernow, and you're listening to the Shandyland Podcast. I'm absolutely thrilled to have Marshall Shafkowitz with me today, chef and executive director of Brightwater, a center for the study of food. Now, that took me a couple of tries to get through, but I did it right that time. Thank you so much, chef, for being here with me. I really appreciate it, and I'm really excited to talk to you today. Uh, it's always great to talk to you. Um, you know, it, Brightwater, you know, that crazy name, a center for the study of food, and it's in the craziest place in the world, uh, Bentonville, Arkansas. Absolutely. You know, we, we, we call it Pleasantville or living <laughs> inside uh, the Truman Show. Um, you know, been here just over a year. And, and the cool thing is I've only met like 12 people from Arkansas. <laughs> Nobody's from here. Uh, being the home of Walmart, it's such a transient area uh, and an international area. And who would have thought Bentonville, Arkansas? Right. Well, one of these days when I'm allowed to get on a plane again or when any of us are, I'll have to come out there and come see you and we'll, we'll do some education stuff for food allergies at, uh, at Brightwater. Absolutely. I'd love that. Right. I just I, haven't, I have not been on a plane since January. Uh, it's, you know, it's scarier. It's longer for me, um, just because I don't I don't get to travel as yeah. much as I used to. But you know, wait, no, it was January. It was January or February. I was out in uh, I was out in Napa, right when everything was starting to happen, and I think I was the only one on the plane at that point wearing a mask. Really? Uh, you were yeah. forward leaning. Well, it, it, I was wearing a mask more because of my daughter. And I know we'll we'll talk about we'll talk about her in a, in a little while, but you know my wife and I we were sitting here and we were discussing. She's like, "Okay, you're going out to this conference. You're going to be around a lot of people, but on the West you know, Coast, no less. On the West Coast, that's where it's that's where it's starting to spread. Wear a mask. Yeah, and fascinating. Absolutely, you know, and and it's like any anybody who knows who the leader is, you just say yes, chef, and you do it. <laughs> So I said, yes, chef. And my wife's not a chef. Uh, well, you were well-trained. <laughs> but I listened. <laughs> <laughs> well, on training, so so you're a chef, obviously. How did you how did you get into chefiness? And you started teaching kind of right off the bat. So um, there's kind of a dual story there. How did you decide to become a chef and a chef educator? So how, how, did, how did I become a chef? Well, my family owned a restaurant. And, you know, so it was the business was there all the time. And, and it's funny when I say my family owned a restaurant, people are like, oh, so your dad was a chef, your mom was a chef. Absolutely not. They were the money. Uh, but a lot of it was my babysitter. And, you know, me, me being in the place after school because my dad worked and my mom was running around. I'm the youngest of five kids. So it was kind of like, hey, he's the youngest. We don't have time. You go there. And all right. So that's what ended up happening. And, you know, think about, think about a little kid, boy or girl, doesn't matter. And you get to see these 10 inch chef knives. Now I'm only five, six and a half on a good day. So a 10 inch <laughs> knife looked like, you know, looked like Excalibur to me, uh, you know, being eight, nine years old in fire. So okay, little boys paradise, huh? Swords and flame. I, you know, and that's what started the journey for me. And I really started, you know, I wash dishes. I would keep myself busy. The chef would give me a knife and it was paring knife. And you're like, okay, I need you to cut carrots. 
And that started the journey for me. Uh, but that's not where my passion for food came from, actually. It was a year prior to my parents saying, hey, you need to go work in a restaurant. We just need you out of, here, out of the house because you're underfoot. Um, my friend Hector, and we were in, I think we might have been in first grade, second grade at that point. We were at the house. We were hungry. And he said, I know how to make an omelet. So two seven-year-olds standing on a chair in a kitchen with flame, saute pan, latchkey kids, and he taught me how to make an omelet. We made an utter mess of my parents' kitchen, and God, did I get a whooping from that. Was it delicious, but, though? Oh, it was great. And, <laughs> it, and it was my turn on to hot sauce, too, because we burnt the snot out of the eggs, but we used <laughs> a half a bottle of Tabasco, and that just started the whole journey. And, it, and it's always been trying to, uh, you know, going to Stalking the Green Fairy. I had these things when I was a child, and I'm trying to recreate them. It's, uh, it, it's like recreating your firsts. Um, now, I know for some, from some of these listeners, they're going to go, hey, wait, that's a drug reference. It is. My mom was a drug and alcohol abuse counselor, so I got a lot of uh, insight into that psyche. Um, so stalking the green fairy always stuck trying to get that first high again. So it was trying to recreate those firsts again. And then, uh, Michael Green, uh, an author, uh, wrote a book called stalking the green fairy about trying to recreate all his food firsts. And I followed that same process in my own personal life of introducing food to my kids as a chef. Uh, and so it's, it, and as a dad, so it's been kind of fun. Uh, trying to figure that whole life journey out. But through high school, I worked in the restaurant and, you know, I played sports and I worked and I went to school. And so my days were always full, but my passion was always in this, I'm going to cook. And this is the job I want to do. So uh, my parents pulled their money out. The restaurant closed. It was on, on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And it was okay. I need something to do. I'm not a college. I'm not ready for college, which I know it's, it's hysterical. I'm an executive director of a culinary school now, but at 18, 19 years old, dumb kid, you know, I, I started school. I failed out, you know, I wasted money. So it was go work. So I apprenticed. I went, I went to Aix-en-Provence in the South of France um, and worked at Paul Cezanne's home. There's a small restaurant in there. And I did my apprenticeship. Um, so with the same chef we had, so you can really say I apprenticed for eight years under the same chef, learning and soaking and, and just uh, messing things up and burning things and not getting yelled at. So he like, taught me how to not necessarily just be a chef, but how to run a kitchen, how to, how to, be intentional and scare people without ever yelling, how to teach. you know, and, and how to teach. You know, he, he did teach me. Actually, no, I don't think he taught me how to teach. He taught me how to train. And there's a difference between training and teaching. Um, he, the learning of teaching came later. Uh, so, you know, I went to college. Uh, I was 24 at that point, you know, jumping ahead. I worked a bunch of places, bounced around. I uh, was stupid for a little while. Uh, like everybody else, you know, I was, you know, Thank yeah, God eight, there 18. weren't cell phones for that. Uh, no, you know, it was at 18 to 24. 
I was, I bounced around. I was in Glassboro, New Jersey. I was in Philly. I was in New York city. And, you know, it kind of stayed in the, in the East coast where I could get home within a few hours, took college classes, joined a fraternity, uh, failed all those classes, left the fraternity. And I, I, I was sitting with my mom. A lot of conversations in my life actually happened around my mother. Um, you know, my father died when I was 19 years old and, you know, she didn't have a job. She was a homemaker and, you know, taking care of five kids. But now I'm the oldest because everybody else is gone. So it was me and my mom having conversations. My, my sister Frida would come in and out of the picture because she was at school or she, I mean, she, she's got more degrees than uh, most universities offer. Um, because she's just this lifelong student and her and I were sitting and she goes, you know, you've always had this passion for food. Why not go get a culinary degree? So I, you know, was like, okay. And I was, I was working at this restaurant in Cedarhurst, New York called Justin's and the owner, and it was Justin, of course, um, because what chefs are very ego. Well, we're, we're <laughs> ego so we name things after ourselves. Uh, he he turns around and he says, yeah, you know, your mom's right. You can run my restaurant. You can work every single position here. And, you know, you can do the books. You can, you know, you do all my ordering. You even do the dishes, you know, and you make fun of the servers. So you're a chef at heart. Right. And he was a, a CIA grad. And he looked at me and goes, I'm going to take you to a couple schools. So, you know, we went out to the New York Institute of Technology um, great culinary school, you know, community college feel. And he's like, yeah, not really. You. We went up to the CIA and, you know, he knew people there. So we got behind the scenes tours as I was going in with an alumni. And afterwards he goes, okay, now we're going to take a drive to Johnson and Wales. And we're at J&W and we're sitting there and we're having coffee. And he turns to me and goes, you're not going to CIA. You're going to Johnson and Wales. He's, Johnson, it's CIA at that time, and this is 93. Yeah, it was 1993, 94. Um, he's like, you're not a, you're not a CIA student. And at that time, CIA didn't have a bachelor's program. They only had the associate's degree. And, you know, they put out people who are going into work as line cooks in the industry. And I already at that geez like 15 years of experience a lot of experience yeah in a lot of different places and and so he's he just said cia is not for you you need to learn management skills so i enrolled at johnson and wales and you know i did my associate's degree in a in a year and a half i just like pumped through it and uh went down and funny thing is i worked for a chef at the marriott marquee named charlie albanos who uh, was a New York Institute of Technology graduate. Um, So it's like the world came back home for me uh, during my externship. And then I stayed on for a year uh, at the Marquis and worked through the Olympics. And it was crazy. 96 Olympics was just insane. I bet there's some stories to tell there. um, Geez. Week one was 100 plus hours. Week two was 100 plus hours. (laughs) Uh, well, I was actually six weeks really of work because we had the Olympics and the Paralympics afterwards. But what was funny about all of that, and like a great story, 
from there that I'll always remember. Each one of us was assigned a dignitary to work for ACOG, the Atlantic uh, Committee for the Olympic Games. And, you know, being at the marquee, we were only open for, for foreign dignitaries. So that's, it, you know, no guest could stay at the hotel unless you came in credentialed. So to get in the building, it was, you know, hand, handprint scanner. We had these big, gigantic IDs that we had to wear everywhere. You know, we cooked for the Clintons at that time. Um, I worked in the restaurant Pompano's, which was awesome. Absolutely awesome. But one of our, I was assigned to the royal family for Spain. So anytime they wanted food, I would cook. That's, I just made sure, like if our breakfast cooks had to do something, I was there to make sure that it was correct. That a lot of it was just overseen. No pressure. Uh, Yeah, a ton of pressure. A ton of pressure. (laughs) For a, a 24-year-old at this point, you know, and, and just being, you know, this is like, you got to get this right because this is a royal family. And one of, one of my buddies was assigned to um, uh, Semaranch, uh, Antonio Semaranch, who was the head of the International Olympic Committee. And he's known for his chestnut. So he carried this chestnut that he's had as a boy. Like well, literally a chestnut? A real chestnut that he had for forever. Well, we threw it out. Um, so seven chefs inside a dumpster, <laughs> a freaking chestnut, you know, and it's like, you sit here and go, oh, I'm never going to remember these kind of experiences, but then you sit back and you go, okay, what was the craziest things you did as a chef? I dumpster yeah. dived for a chestnut. Dumpster diving for a chestnut because I can't threw- wait to hear what your two truths and a lie are. Um, because I mean like they're writing themselves here aren't they (laughs) some of them yes (laughs) yeah and and I it's just in that in that experience you know I went from cooking for the Clintons and having the um secret service I mean they're like watching you I'm expecting a food taster I'm like dude you're standing over me you're seeing this is butter it came from a farm, and the butter's going in the pan. Watch me or, taste it. it. You know, it's it's like it, it, that pressure was interesting. Didn't meet, didn't meet them. They didn't come through the kitchen, which would have been would have been awesome. Would have been super cool, yeah. And, but now I cooked for the Clintons, and now I'm in the I'm in the home state of the Clintons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like. All, Things keep kind of crossing over each other, and really everything cool. comes full full circle. Comes it all comes full circle um, to meeting some of the Paralympics after the after the Olympics was over. The Paralympics, which came right in right afterwards, and we were still the Atlantic Committee for the Olympic Games home. So now we're cooking for para para athletes. Some of the coolest, most inspirational people I ever met. You know, we got to meet the athletes at that point because we could go to the events. I mean, when you're working 100 hours, you don't want to go anywhere. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I set up a hammock in our courtyard so I could take 15-minute naps just outside our restaurant. So our, our, the, in, in the marquee, the kitchen's up on the third floor and it had this little outdoor terrace that we were supposed to have a garden um, which had two dead trees and a bunch of squirrels. Uh, <laughs> that's what was in our garden. 
So I had my, I, I strung up a hammock and we would just lay out there and, and, you know, we just string back and forth. Somebody was exhausted, go lay out in the hammock. Our sous chef tried to get us hotel rooms, never going to happen. You know, we've got all these foreign dignitaries and a bunch of crazy chefs who have just, you know, worked forever. And now we just want to drink and sleep. Work hard for uh, <laughs> yeah, it, but though my time at the marquee, um, you know, it was, it was 18 months, but it was insane from, and, and the Olympics was nothing compared to, I think it might've been the last year or the, the dying years of Freaknik. Um, yeah, so Freaknik is actually pretty, was pretty wild. What is um, Freaknik? That's when uh, it used to be when all the historic, historically black colleges would descend on Atlanta and have basically spring break. Um, and this was, so this was, would have been 96. Um, Did we 96. move now from New York to Atlanta? Oh yeah. I'm, I'm in Atlanta. No, the Marriott Marquis was in Atlanta. It oh. wasn't, yeah. Not, not the New Wait. York. It was the two, the two marquees. Um, Atlanta 96 Olympics. Clearly I need yeah. more coffee in my day before we record these. <laughs> um, <freaking laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, no worries. No worries. Uh, my, I remember my, my executive chef, and, and this is like the last story I'll tell about it, about the marquee. 96 executive chef turns around and comes up to all of us uh, where, to, to where we had just put in like 12 hours. I'll give each one of you a hundred bucks cash to work the overnight uh, in room service. And we're sitting there like, no. He's like, all right, I'll make it 200 bucks, plus we'll pay you hours. So we're sitting and going, me and two other two other cooks, we're like, How bad can it be? Sure, I'll do that. I still have nightmares of the ticket machine. <laughs> we, we got to a point where we were like five hours on pizza. And people were still ordering. Every every room in the hotel was booked. And it was booked not with one person in it or, or double occupancy. It was like seven people in a room. Oh, and hungry. And they, oh, and they were just ordering and ordering and ordering and ordering. We ran out of pizza shells. We ran out of pasta. We ran out of anything that came out of our commissary by about 3 o'clock in the morning. Holy and holy. we orders coming in. And, I mean, we were just we'll like. We'll make you I, something. <laughs> We're, we'll just, we're just putting stuff together. We didn't even know what it was. Uh, I'm in the back rolling out pizza dough because, you know, the kid from New York knows how to make pizza dough, of course. Um, you know, and it's going to be the tightest, most disgusting pizza dough because they didn't have 24 hours to rest or three days like I normally do. But just totally insane time to, I fast forward, I go back to culinary school. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to get a bachelor's degree. So I was in the second graduating class of Johnson Wales bachelor's program in uh, 98. And, you know, the funny thing is from there, there are only three of us still in the industry. Um, everybody else went on to become office managers or, or got out, opened their own businesses or did their own, did their own thing. But it was, let's see, there were 28 of us, 29 of us. And, um, it was half JNW students, half CIA students. Cool. Because yeah, CIA didn't have a didn't have a bachelor's didn't program. Have a bachelor's program. So they so we had this cool combined class, and it was it was awesome. It was fun. Um, didn't really work anywhere. 
you know, I, I would drive back to New York, work on the weekends, come back, come back to Boston or Rhode Island. What's funny about hearing this journey, and obviously there's a lot of great stories in there, which is so fun to hear about, but this is where your LinkedIn profile starts, right? Like right now, like in this, in this story, like you just told me a bajillion stories about being a chef and all of them are super fun and amazing. And you have such great experiences in so many places, but you don't document that. No, you know, it, it, Life started in like 2000, 2002. So if, if, if I were to, when I send my CV to somebody, it's 11 pages long. <laughs> and, you know, half of it doesn't matter. I'm going to be honest with you. People, what, I, what I've learned over the last really like five, six years is people want to know what you did now. Sure. They don't. But this is interesting. I mean, this is fun, right? Like, not to say that all the teaching and educating that you've done isn't interesting. I'm sure there's a bajillion amazing stories there too. But well, how did I how did I get to get to yeah. that? That's you know, it's I it's love it. All those instances of working in restaurants, whether in the U.S., whether you know my travels through Europe, where you know, it's funny. Right after my right after my bachelor's degree, I was dating this girl engaged to be married to her and uh, I mean I'm not gonna say her name um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know her, her first name was Julie we were we were engaged to be married and um, she she came back from and she was like seven years younger than me eight years younger than me at that point and she was still the rah-rah college girl and um, she went to a college like lock-in and came back and she handed me the engagement ring and said, um, I love you, but I'm not in love with you anymore. And that kind of like crushed my soul, completely crushed my soul. So from that, I actually bought an airplane ticket, I quit my job. I was a, I was working for American Hospitality Concepts as their chef. Um, and you know, I was designing and developing recipes is really what I was doing at that point. You know, I was a corporate chef-ish for that title. They send me around to open up restaurants. And um, it just crushed my soul. So I quit my job. I just walked into my boss, CEO of the company. And they were paying me really well. Um, you know, I was, it was young to be earning six figures. You know, and have the have the corporate expense account that was sure. almost as my my salary, um, but I was traveling too much. You know, the whole the whole nine yards, and I got it. And, and now I get it. Now I understand it. But when she did that, it just crushed my soul. So I bought an airplane ticket for one year and one day apart. Land in Milan, leave, and the only the only two things I had dates I needed to remember. Right, three dates I needed to remember. One was to land in Milan, make sure I was on the plane. Two, to be at Charles de Gaulle Airport one year from that date and call my mother on her birthday. Those were the three dates I needed to do. Whatever I did after that, it didn't matter. And that, that journey, that trip, just and, – and so this is before, before grad school, before really getting into teaching – that trip shaped me more as who I am today than any other experience in, in prior to culinary school or since, except for becoming a father. Well, then let's um, say thank you to Julie for that. Yeah, she, 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 
pushed me, made me. Made There's me songs out. about this, you know, unanswered prayers and whatnot. Yeah, you know, I think otherwise I'd be a, um, I'd probably be a banker. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be a suit, which is so not me. Um, so you know, in in that trip. I land in Mil- I land in Milan. I go from Milan to Sicily. I land in Palermo. I'm in Palermo for a couple of weeks, just kind of bouncing around, learning about the city. Um, I don't speak a lick of Italian, which is hysterical. And every mu- museum I went into, somebody followed me around uh, <laughs> because well, I was by myself and I had a backpack, you know. And I stayed in youth hostels, so I made friends all over the world from this. And I got, I got connected with culture and cultures. I did. I didn't understand. Um, no matter, no matter how much my parents tried to teach me about cultures, my friends from different cultures tried to teach me that trip immersed me in cultures in a way that I would never, ever know. Cause you know, I got supported that way. I had no more money. I had, you know, so I had to figure out what to do. And, um, and the funny story, I was in Genoa, Italy. And I, it, it, so, and I bounced around from place to place. And there is a story in between where I thought I was going to die. Um, and it turned out to be one of the coolest adventures of my life. I took the, I took a train from Palermo, Sicily to Brindisi, which is the heel of the boot. And on that on that train, you know, I I was really skeptical about traveling on the Ural Pass and all of that because I had heard horror stories. So my whole life, knives, chef pants, you know, because I brought checks with me, um, regular clothes, and you know, like six pairs of six pairs of underwear. You know, that's because that's all I could fit in a bag. I've got it clipped on a rack above me with carabiners locked onto the locked onto the rack. And I'm sitting in a, in a, and I bought, made sure I bought myself first class tickets on every train because again, I've heard horror stories. And if you're in a first class, you usually have the conductors in the, in the car with you and you're by yourself. Um, nobody can, nobody really messes with you. Well, not true. <laughs> I'm in this train car. I've got this little thing by myself and these six guys open up the door and just come in and sit down. We had just got to the other side. Um, so we had left Palermo. We crossed the channel, which that's actually kind of fun because you cross overnight and you don't get out of the train. They load you onto a ferry and oh, you just cool. go straight. Then you get back and you start going. So we just got across. And like a car ferry, people, but a train ferry. Oh, it, 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 was, it was terrifying. These six guys coming in the, coming in the car. Well, Come to find out, they're all going to their compulsory one-year service within the within the Italian army, and I'm I, the whole time I've got my hand on my side because I've got a Leatherman tool and I've got <laughs> blade flipped out, and I'm like, okay, and I'm taking somebody with me, kid from New York, New York City. What do you expect? Um, and you know, one of them turns to me, and goes, "American," and I said, "Yes." He goes, "Oh, friends, Rockville Center." I'm like. New York? And he's like, yeah, I have friends in Rockville Center. And at this point, my mom lives in Elmont, New York, which is two towns away from Rockville Center. My brother's got an apartment in Rockville Center. So we start this crazy conversation. At this point, I'm drinking. As big as it is, it's tiny. And I mean, like, 
thought I was going to die to a meeting homemade prosciutto, cured olives, <laughs> cheese. You know, I'm like, I pull out, I pull out a baguette from my bag and some chocolates and we have this meal two hours later, they get off the train and I'm like, I'm not dead. Everything comes <laughs> together through food, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, and it, and you know, fast forward, I get on, I, I, I get on the ferry and I meet a couple people hanging out. We missed one ferry to go to Corfu mm-hmm. uh, in, in Greece. And <clears throat> I'm sitting there and I'm hanging out in this little, little plaza and I look at these these kids. They they've got to be 18, 19 years old. And I'm like, "You're all waiting for the ferry." Yeah, we're going we're going to mainland Greece. I said, "Well, the ferry stops in Corfu. I'm going too." We start this conversation. We miss the ferry. We chug three bottles of limoncello. <laughs> <laughs> limoncello was the first shot I ever took. I can't drink it anymore. <laughs> yeah, I have a couple of, a couple of bottles like that that I can't touch any longer. Limoncello is not on that list, though. It, it it's only for me now because of that little mm-hmm. little. It doesn't plaza. take much, does it? One experience um, and it's out for life. Absolutely, you know, and 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 but that's the way my whole trip was because it it went from being, I just got my heart broken. I'm not going to experience anything. To, oh my god. Yeah. What a broad what, world. Yeah. There's so there's so much more to this world, and you know, my first friend from South Africa that I ever met that I got a chance to go visit in, in his home in Pretoria and to like really fly over the bush and, and see wild animals too close for comfort. Um, fun, but cool, but, but scary. <laughs> uh, but that, that created just lifelong friendships, you know, to, you know, being in Rome and, and I love Rome, you know, first time I really ate really good pizza or being in, in Naples and, and having amazing pizza mm-hmm. to meeting my friend Becky, who has met my whole family um, on a on a excursion to Greece because I just I said, "Hey, I'm going to Athens," and running around uh, the Plaka in Athens uh, and and being able to tell stories to students who are like, "Oh, we're going to go to Greece." I'm like, "You got to go to the Plaka. It's a little different than it was." Uh, you know, yesterday as it was today to, you know, the funny thing is, and I, and I know it's a podcast, to this box. Nobody I mean, can this, see that box but us. Well, so you're going to have so, to tell them about it. Ah, a, chess, a traveling chess set. It's a traveling chess set. Made so out all of, the chess pieces have little like pegs on the bottom where they can fit into the board without falling out. And they're all made out of olives. Olives? The whole, thing, the whole, the whole chess board the, the the pieces themselves are made out of the pits of olives. That's amazing. And the board is made out of olive wood that me and my closest friend Rich have played chess everywhere in the United States that we that we travel. Chessboard this board guys. Yeah. that I haggled for. <laughs> and I think I paid. You know, at that point, I'm going way back because I still use drachma. At that point, I think I might have paid like 300 drachma for this thing. Which is? Uh, about $1.50. <laughs> so you mentioned your students in there telling these stories to them. Yeah. It, well, it, it's – so I, I try to explain to students um, food is, is, is the great equalizer. Yeah. You know, we're – 
we're in this world today that no matter how much money you make, you still eat. You'll still enjoy that that bite, that piece of um, whatever it is, because if it's made with care and love and compassion and passion, you, how how little you make to how much you make means nothing. I was that, thinking about that while you, when you were talking about uh, the royal family of Spain and the Clintons and you know the idea that no matter who's in the room, there's food and therefore there's somebody in the back you know, in the back of the house, if you will, cooking that food, like chefs get to go everywhere. Yeah. We're, we're, you know, think about chefs like doctors and rock stars. Yeah. You know, we put the white coat on, we can walk anywhere. Anywhere. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, it's amazing. If, if there's a food place and somebody knows you're a chef, the, the opening of doors and, and the conversation, because everybody, everybody asks a chef, how to, how do you, <laughs> right. you know, and, and where do you go to eat? And then they get completely flustered when they hear that, Hey, yeah, I just love a great hamburger totally. or, or, or give me, give me a, give me something that is from your heart. Yeah. And, and it, it, it blows people's minds away that it's not, Oh, I've got to go eat at the, at the three Michelin star restaurant. Chefs eat like night. normal humans too. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it's. I think Anthony Bourdain said it best. When somebody opens their home and cooks for you, they're giving you a piece of themselves. True. And I, what I try to share with students is, you know, the, the the philosophical point. As a chef, you're a you're a memory maker. You create something that connects a person to an event, time, or place. You know, you, if we all closed our eyes and we thought about that Sunday meal, whether it was the first or the last Sunday meal with a loved one, yeah, you, you remember that meal. You could even step but, it back, right? That last moment, and there's always going to be food involved. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and, and that's, so sharing that with the student is, is it's one of the most important lessons we, we teach, or, or I feel that I share with students. Because, you know, you go to culinary school or you're working in the industry and somebody teaches you to pick up a knife and start cutting or to start rolling the dough out or how to how to shape bread. But they forget that there's the customer that's part of the conversation and you have to you have to think about and you don't have to. You should think about, well, what impact is this going to have on them? Am I creating that meal that people will come back to at some point in their, in their journey in life and say, I was at this restaurant and that meal was amazing. It's Um, funny. It's the little things that you remember there too, right? In those, mm -hmm. in those moments, it's like random little things. There was a um, arbitrary story, but there was a cruise that we were on family wise years and years and years ago. And the, the stewardess would always shape the butter. And she had like a thousand different little butter molds. And I realize it's a crazy thing. It still tastes like butter. But every single meal, there was always a different shape, right? There was like a little rabbit butter, a little flour butter, a little ribbon butter, whatever, right? But we were so looking forward to it. And it had such an impact in the memory in my mind. It's the little tiniest thing, right? But every day. And and you, but you go back and you think about it mm-hmm. and... It, it, it expands more and more and more to the memory. And that's the, that's the side of cooking 
that people don't necessarily focus on or think about. You know, so the, you've you've got the cultural aspect of it, which is so important. And and in some ways, chefs enhance the cultural aspect of it, but then also bastardize the cultural aspect. Um, we 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 do it. We call it creativity. Um, and. Or, 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 or fusion, you know, sometimes the original way it was done was better than anything we can ever come up with. And, and it's interesting how my, my point of view on food has changed, you know, give me great ingredients and, and the simplest, most pure cooking method with it. And let me share that. Um, and that when I eat, that's how I want to eat. I want, I, I don't want 15,000 flavors. I want three. Right. And, you know, and I try and teach the, our students that we let them be creative. Absolutely. And we let them we let them fail so we can teach them how to succeed, uh, which I that's what my job is. You know, how do you recover from the failure? Um, you know, it's the old it's the old Confucius uh, saying of get knocked down three times, get up four. Um, you know, it really or five times or six times and get up seven, whatever, whatever it may be that's what a that's what an educator should do um and you know how i mentioned my mother the reason i'm a teacher is because of her and because of that trip to europe because i came back and i thought my european counterparts were going to be just better i thought everybody who went through an apprentice program or everybody who went to a culinary school um or everybody who just worked in europe was just better than 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 us than us as americans in my field because, you know, I mean, cuisine, cuisine American Very cuisine came, came from Europe. Okay. Oh, I was so sorely disappointed. So um, I landed and my mom picked me up at JFK and she took me to Roy Rogers because I was craving <laughs> a double bacon cheeseburger because can't get any, can't get real good fast food or a bacon double cheeseburger, um, which I get horrible, but eh. Like I was, I, it was long ago when I wasn't worried about my waistline back then. And, um, she sat there and we, as we were talking, I said, you know, just the, the level of skill was terrible. And she turned around and she said, do something about it. So I went and got a master's degree. In education. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, so, so this was the original question, right? How did you become a teacher? And I had like a thousand questions about teaching in culinary school and all of them are now out the window, which is fine. Uh, but I do want to ask one and I realize, sorry, listeners, it's going to be a little bit of a non sequitur, but you know, we've, we've gotten a, a, a super interesting story along the way and I love it. And thank you for sharing everything there. So now I'm going to completely flip, turn it around and, and, and bring it back to my one question that I'm not going to let go here. Can a food allergic kid become a culinary student and therefore chef? Oh, absolutely. And how does that work? Well, today it's even easier because everybody's walking around wearing a mask. Just put a respirator. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, no, like, you um, know, how do you pick something, right? Like, how do you take seafood class if you're allergic to shellfish? Or how do you, I mean, I'm picking something arbitrary and there probably isn't a seafood class. I don't know. But so how does that work? At that point, you're focusing on an ingredient. Let's actually focus on the competency. Let's focus on the technique. So when we talk about sautéing, okay, sautéing has a very specific way that you do it. Braising, roasting, baking, 
There's very specific techniques that you have to follow. Master the technique, use the ingredient. Don't master the ingredient and try and use a technique. Okay? And so once you're able to do that, once you, once you, and I don't really don't like using the word mastery because, you know, there, there's only sure. a certain number of certified master chefs out there. Um, I really, I really prefer, uh, become competent, incredibly competent, proficient uh, in the technique, then it doesn't matter what the ingredient is. So if I talk about the standard breading procedure, whether you're using chicken or you're using, or you're using veal, it doesn't matter. It's the standard breading procedure. Sautéing, high heat, low fat. It's, it's the technique that I'm really focused on. So now with the student, when they come to a school, they come to culinary school, uh, and they have an allergy, my first thing is make that allergy known, go through whatever process the school has for requesting an accommodation. So that day that you can't be in the kitchen, you're able to take that same technique and go to a different kitchen and demonstrate your, your ability to do that same technique with a different product. Now, now the hope is the chef that's teaching the class or the administrator at the school understand, understands and acknowledges from that point of view rather than turning around and, and saying to somebody, you can't do that. Right. I mean, you think, I have, right? Like if, if you just kind of a look at it from a, an outside perspective, you'd think a food allergy kid can't be a chef. I'm allergic to bananas and banana, bananas are used all the time. I have an amazing, I that about amazing you. huh? I forgot that about you, that you have a food allergy. Well, I'm, I'm allergic to latex. That I know. You know, <laughs> so, but you know, think, think about gloves mm -hmm. prior to, years ago, latex was the type of glove with cornstarch in it, you know, and I have, I have a staff member right now with Brightwater, amazing chef. You know, she's a registered dietitian and a, a culinarian. But allergic to? Gluten. She, can, she, cannot, she cannot ingest any gluten whatsoever. She's celiac. And on top of it, she has Crohn's. So think, think about everything else that's, that's on top of all of these allergies. Yet she's one of my stars. So you heard I, it here. You can be a chef if you are food allergic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we'll get, our world is changing so much. I mean, we've got gluten-free bakeries. We have, you know, sure. vegeta you know, the vegetarian restaurant explosion that's happening in rural, rural places, not just mainstream urban environments. Mm -hmm. Everything is changing. People are becoming more knowledgeable. Yay, internet. Boo, internet. Um, becoming, you know, WebMD sure. expert. Uh, you know, it, it's, you can do whatever it is you choose to set out to do. It's whether or not you're willing to advocate for yourself. You know, that's the first thing. And if somebody isn't going to listen to you, have a bigger voice. I love that. You know, and, you know, and, and that's, that's just the truth. You, you, I, I always tell, I always tell my students, no one's going to do this for you, but you, 
I tell this to my staff. No one's going to do this for you, but you. If you don't raise your voice and say, hey, I'm not comfortable. You know, I, I've got over 200 students in my school right now and, and, you know, 25 staff members. And we're in the middle of COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I'm operating face-to-face classes at almost full capacity. Wow. And it's because my staff, you know, I had a plan. My staff had a different plan. They raised their voice and we came up with a better plan. As and, it should be. You know, that's anything in life. You've got to open your voice, open your mouth and really say it. All right. So on the topic of voice and advocating, your daughter, you've been, so last week I saw you were fundraising for JM, which I'm going to screw up, juvenile myositis. Okay. Talk to us about how you've been driven to, um, you know, fundraise for them and how our listeners can help you. And, um, you know, what's the, what's the force behind that? Tell us about your daughter. Sloan. Um, so, geez, she was four. She's seven now uh, when this happened. Um, she started to develop this weird rash. She looked like she had a butterfly on her face. That's really what the rash and her fingers were red from the cuticle all the way up to the first knuckle. Um, And then walking, she just started falling down. Um, And, you know, it was kind of, it was pretty scary. Uh, So, you know, we went to the dermatologist, dermatologist gave us all these creams and steroidal creams and all of this. None of it helped. My sister was in uh was in visiting my sister Frida was in visiting and she started watching my, my sister my sister's a dpt she started watching doctor of physical therapy um she started watching my uh my daughter get up off the ground and she would have to roll onto her belly get up under her knees put her hand on a chair or or the couch to stand up like her legs Walking. didn't have the strength to do it her legs didn't have the strength. It hurt to do it. She was in pain. She would just fall for no reason. Um, you know, not the, not the typical behavior of a four-year-old. Right. Uh, so uh, my sister's like, there's, there's something really wrong, you know, and I, and I don't want to scare you, but this is all metastasizing as uh, looks like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Now that's a disease that, generally attacks boys. It's really prevalent in, in, in males, not in females. So, you know, uh, being a, an educator, being and a chef, and not knowing anything about the medical world, uh, completely freaked out at this point. So we call our pediatrician, and uh, we, go in, we go in to see her. My sister comes along because she's incredibly knowledgeable, and, and I trust her. Um, you know, and there's very few people in the medical world that I actually trust uh, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. But um, uh, we were sitting there, and, and, and uh, Dr. Lieberman uh, was is, is was our pediatrician's name at the time. She says, "I'm not going to give you a a uh, diagnosis, but I'm telling you, your daughter has." And she said it this fast: juvenile dermatomyositis. And I said, "Excuse me, say that one more time." <laughs> yeah. I was like, what is that? She says, juvenile dermatomyositis. And I'm like, okay, I don't 
know what any, I mean, I know what dermato means, you know, skin, so skin inflammation, okay? What is this myositis thing? It's an inflammation of the muscles. Like, okay, you're going to the ER at Lori Children's Hospital now. Like, uh, can I, you know, it's like, I've got a children's hospital five minutes from my house. No, you're going to Lori Children's Hospital, downtown Chicago, now. And, then, you know, you, 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 you look back at things and you go, silver linings. Um, so we, you know, I, I've got two other children. Sloan has a twin brother, Asher, and a little brother, Ethan. And um, my my sister-in-law happens to be, a, you know, Frida's wife is at, is at our house. And we call her, like, we're going, we're going to the ER. Um, Frida will be home after she drops us off. So we go to the ER and they immediately admit Sloan. Um, and 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, the head of pediatric rheumatology comes in and, uh, she's like, yeah, your daughter, your, your daughter is a classic case of juvenile dermatomyositis. And I'm like, okay, I still have no idea what this thing is. Um, how she got it, what, anything along those lines. So, um, fast forward a couple of hours, truthfully, um, we come to find out that we're at one of the three centers of excellence for juvenile myositis, um, which is, uh, an ultra, ultra rare autoimmune disease. You know, uh, if you think, if we've got Venn diagram, you've got lupus, everybody in the world knows lupus and sure. You know, big pharma throws billions of dollars at research for lupus. Then you go all the way down and you see this JM, juvenile myositis, and then juvenile dermatomyositis, and then juvenile polyomyositis, which has another aspect. So it's got the myositis, it's got the dermocyte, the dermatocyte, and then it's got calcinosis sites, calcium growth deposits that happen in the skin. Sloan doesn't have that. Um, so we still, we're still, you know, brains reeling, going, what the sure. hell is going on? It had on? to be terrifying. Um, yeah. You know, it, 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 it's something I wish no parent ever, ever had to go through. So, you know, the treatment and the way they treat at um, Lori's is different than the way they treat it anywhere else in the United States. Um, because they're a research center for this. Uh, Dr. Linda Pockman, who is the head research person for uh, juvenile myositis, is based there. So her rheumatology department, they all go through this clinical rotation. Dr. Lieberman did her residency at Lori Children's Hospital. It's the only she knew what was going on with Sloan. So we meet the... Small world. uh, um, Yeah, it's the way... That's going to be our theme for the day. It, it, it is, um, you know, divine intervention. Um, we, we met Dr. Keva Ardalan, who is by far the most amazing doctor I've ever met. You know, not only is he a gentleman, he's a gentleman. Um, he sat down with us. He spent four hours with me, Freddie and Sloan, uh, in the room. Uh, you know, she's been admitted to the hospital. They've got her on solutions and it, bells and whistles hooked up to her <coughs> and he says we're going to start treatment now this is a girl who fell when she was walking just imagine walking down the street and just falling no reason you know and and, and now you're four years old 
go down the street, fall for no reason. Um, so he starts to explain to us that basically her white blood cells were attacking her own body, causing inflammation in the muscles. And it, it can get very serious when you think about what is a muscle. Everything's a muscle. So she went through uh, the regular muscular studies to uh, a swallow study because it takes muscles to swallow. Mm-hmm. Heart was being, was being checked and monitored all the time. Brain waves were being checked and monitored all the time. Um, now, on a scale of one to five, they put her as a four on this, five being the most serious. Wow. Uh, and, you know, massive doses of steroids. That's the first one of the first treatments. Um, and then something called intravenous immunoglobulins or IVIG. Uh, purified white blood cells, which uh, in layman's terms, the way they, once they were injected, they basically tricked her body to attacking those rather than attacking her. Leaving her body alone, yeah. Leaving her body alone. So after five days, she had her last, she had IVIG on the day before she was released. Um, We spent five days in, in Lori's, most amazing care, wonderful nurses, um, and and doctors, and it was Dr. Dr. Ardalan, ninety percent of the time, and uh, physical therapists, and they came and they treated her as a patient, and they treated us as a family. Um, and you know, it. Um, we started at, at day five. We started to get our daughter back, uh, and then every week uh, for the next year. We went in for um, once a week, two hours, 125 milligram injection of uh, IV drip of steroids. Wow. This was a solid year. And, and then it started to taper down. And every 28 days, we would go in for a 12-hour infusion of IVIG. Wow. I can't um, imagine keeping a five-year-old entertained while hooked up to an IV for 12 hours. Emberger? <laughs> Emberger was number one. Barbies. I think I've played with more Barbies as an adult male than I did ever. <laughs> um, I have seen every Disney movie out. No doubt. And, and probably repeat most of the lines from them. Uh, I've learned more about Monster High. <laughs> because, I have boys, you know, so a couple of these are, are, are foreign to me. But So how... how... How can our listeners help? I know that you're fundraising for, you know, find a cure for JM. How can people so the help cure, you? The Cure JM Foundation. Um, it's uh, cure. I think it's curejm.org cure um, is uh, the only foundation that raises money f- to for research. And you know, and and this is in this day and age, we're all very conscious of this. Sure. Ninety cents on every dollar goes to funding research. The Everybody who is involved from an officership is a volunteer and it's all, um, you know, when, when you think about this, this is one out of every million children have this disease in the United States. So 0.00005 in the world will have this. So that, that, what does that equate to? It's like 250,000 people in the world. Wow. Maybe 65,000 when, when you think about the total population. So any dollar, a dollar, five dollars, whatever, 
goes to the doctors to fund research for alternative medicines because steroids just wreak havoc on the body to finding why just why because nobody knows why this happens to our kids and then finding a potential cure because once we understand the why um, and and I'm, I'm I'm constantly delving into the research on what the doctors are doing. And uh, it's funny. My my wife and I were having a conversation, and this is this is where it becomes real. We got COVID nineteen going on. Mm-hmm. My daughter can't take live vaccines, so like MMR, she can't have it. And and now we're talking about COVID nineteen. Well, nobody knows whether it's an RNA, right. an RNA manufactured or a live, uh, a live strain manufactured, live strain manufactured. My daughter can't have Mm-mm. because that could potentially kill her. It's a, she's got an autoimmune disease. So now we're, we're all, we're all hoping that they come out with the RNA or vector vector vaccine. Now, I'm a chef and I'm talking about vector vaccines. You know, it's like, thought, it, right? yeah, I, the conversations change and move into these crazy uh, developments. Um, and, and so now with, with JM, it's even more important that we raise whatever dollars we can raise. Um, so they can, they can look online there for curejm.org. Yeah. The curejm, curejm.org or the cure JM foundation. Um, if you just type in cure JM, you'll see you'll find <laughs> it, it. Yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll pop up. Um, and, and you get to read stories from Jim Minow and, and why the JM foundation happened. Um, and, and it, it's, it's heartbreaking, but you know, the, the, the interesting thing is there's no cure for this right now. Right. So the best, the best we can, we can look for just like a cancer patient is remission. Um, and Sloan is, you know, she's gone from 11 medications down to two. And she's on that way to being in remission where it's remission with no medicine. The scary thing is if she has a flare, we're right back to square one. We start with the steroids and the IVIG again. Um, So we live every day with the, okay, is today the day she's going to wake up and say, oh, my arms hurt. Or are we going to get a call from the school? And, and, you know, we don't let it stop us. We go out. We still like sure. she wears she she has sunscreen on because UVA UVB lights are a trigger for a flare. So we've got you know I wash my clothes with this UV soap that makes all of our clothes UV resistant. Um, to how we go out when we go out during the day, it's amazing. Um, we spend a lot of time at indoor pools. You, you know, it, we adjust. That's right. You. you you adjust your life. And I mean, for, for my children, all three of them, I do anything to make sure that they are safe and have the ability to grow up and have great lives. You know, and that's the one that you've told us about today. (laughs) I like it. I think that what you're doing is amazing for your daughter. I think that what you have done is amazing for your students. And I truly Truly appreciate this conversation and your being here today. It's my pleasure. You know, it's always it's always fun to catch up with you. Uh, you know, I I I think you know I'm somewhat of a 
I'm a, I'm a little bit of a zealot when it comes to the culinary <laughs> world because I'm so passionate about it, but I never talk about myself. Um, it's just, you know, well, I'm glad this- I got to hear a little bit more about, you know, inside of Marshall today. I think it's amazing. So as you know, um, and hopefully as our listeners know, at this point, I like to wrap all these up with a little bit of a fun game, two truths and a lie. So I'm going to turn it over to you to tell us what your two truths and a lie are, but please don't reveal which one is the lie because Listeners, you'll have to come visit us in the comments on social media or on your favorite uh, podcast platform to find out which of the following is not true. I've worked for two certified master chefs. Close to 80% of my body is covered in tattoos. And I'm an avid rock climber. Oh, I don't know what the right answer is on that one. But with that, I'm going to say thank you for being here. Listeners, let us know if you'd like to know which of those is not true, which I'm going to find out when we stop recording here. Uh, Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Shandyland again. I'm Shandy Chernow, and I truly appreciate you. Mm